0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks, dating back to 1996.
1: Offers instruction in using the task of everyday life for beating chronic illness, healing from chronic illness. And she has a second book, Suffering and Delight: A Meditation man- Manual for People in Pain. That will come out in fall '99. Uh, I've heard Dalvin talk before. She's a wonderful speaker, and I think. He's
2: Anyway, uh, I haven't ever wanted to talk about sex before, um, mostly because there's not much to say. Just be kind to each other, and that's it. But what happened is that someone gave me a copy of Thich Nhat Hanh's version of the third precept, which the San Francisco Zen Center translates as, Don't Misuse Sexuality. And Thich Nhat Hanh's version so inflamed me that I felt I had to say something. Now Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, as you know, is a very respected and revered Buddhist teacher. His, uh, his writings are very deeply moving. He, they're very deep and loving. In fact, his latest book, The Heart of Buddhist Teachings, which I happen to be reading now, is uh I've just found myself in reading it impressed anew with him and deeply affected you know he obviously thinks very widely and cares enormously about human suffering there's no doubt about this he um in fact his book that I just uh talked about is specifically about suffering and connection which are two topics closest to my heart. That's what I usually lecture about in different guises all the time. He's very involved in helping and comforting and easing human beings. He's devoted his life, his entire life, to us all. And the reason I'm uh, praising him so is I don't want anything that I have to say about his interpretation of sexual responsibility to be misconstrued as a lack of respect. I respect Thich Nhat Hanh very deeply. But I have to come from my own place. I can't just mouth the teachings of great Buddhist teachings, of great Buddhist teachers. My sexual karma is very different from Thich Nhat Hanh's. And so I have a different point of view I'll read the precept that I'm talking about to you. This is the third precept. And it's from his book called For a Future to Be Possible, Commentaries on the Five Wonderful Precepts. So the third precept is about sexual responsibility. And it goes like this. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I vow to cultivate responsibility and learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. Well, of course, you know, his admonitions about uh, sexual responsibility and children and prevent preventing couples and families from being broken up, of course, that's very important. And I think as Buddhists we must respect that but my objection is to this sentence I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long term commitment now I think this is all very well for sexual for celibate monks for people in their dotage who are past sexual desire (laughs) and for people who have found satisfying monogamous relationships but I don't think that this, that expressing the third precept in this way is helpful for young people whose sex drive is very strong. I don't think it's helpful for people who enjoy casual sex. And I don't think it's helpful for people who see sex as a realm of self exploration, like art or, or psychological constructs. In fact, Uh, I think sex is a lot richer as a means of self-exploration than art or psychological constructs. For one it usually takes one other person, at least one other person (laughs) and it elicits the strongest attachments known to human beings and it also is utterly revelatory of your delusions if you pay close attention. I, um, I think it's true that for many people love and long-term commitment is the best backdrop for sexual relationships. For one, uh, you can trust another person with your body and with your vulnerability and that's very comforting. That's a very good thing. And also within the confines of a Of a intimate couple, a committed couple, you can explore your sexuality maybe with more ease than if you're just running around with different people. You can relax more and and explore all your deep desires within the safety of this relationship. So I don't think that you have to, uh, that you have to be a romantic to give romantic love its due. I think it deserves a lot of respect. Sex as an expression of love and commitment between human beings is, again, one of the most wonderful things that human beings can experience. But I don't think monogamy is the only way. In less permissive societies than ours, people get married very young because that's the only way to have sex. And they also don't put into, they don't put onto their couplings the same thing we do. I mean, they don't think that they have to be in love and get along with this person. Their roles are very defined. And it may be that when people in those societies get married very young, they don't actually explore sexuality for a long time, or women ever, probably. They're not allowed to express that. And sex is seen more of a procreative thing, whereas we have many manifestations of it. And even in this society, I'm not in favor of people marrying young. I know it works for some people, but I, I know for many people, you're a very different person at 25 than you are at 50. And if you have any idea of spending your life with another person, it's very unusual that that person would develop in the same way that you would. So I tend to favor later marriages for people. But of course, there are always exceptions. But I think when you're 20, even in this society, and you're not allowed to have sex outside of a commitment, that you'll practically do anything to have sex, and that you'll think, well, I'll worry about the incompatibility factor down the road. Right now, the important thing is to get laid.
0: <laughs>
2: so I think that um, that we're all different. You know, we don't all wish to be con- uh, confined to one relationship or even one gender. And first off, before I really launch into this, I want to make clear my own prejudices and inclinations. I have tremendous respect for and affection for the sex drive. In fact, it was my first teacher, and most enduring teacher. Uh, When I was a young woman, I was born in 1942, so came to sexual maturity in the 50s. And when I was a young woman, I was interested in and proficient at many things. I was educated. I got a master's degree in, in physiological psychology. And right off the bat, as soon as I got out of school, even in the competitive region of Boston and Cambridge, I got a great job right away working with B.F. Skinner at Harvard. Even though there was a lot of competition for jobs like that, and it's been that way all through my life. My career and job realm has always been wonderful. I know for some people that's the source of a great deal of suffering, but it never was for me. For me, the great realm of suffering was sex. And it's the only reason, as a young woman, that I, it even occurred to me to start becoming conscious. Because it created so much suffering for me that it was tremendous. Well, first of all, as I said, I came to sexual maturity in the 50s, so I was taught to believe that I should get married before I had sex. So I kept getting engaged over and over again. (laughs) In in these horrible situations, I even got engaged to two men at the same time. (laughs) And this was actually in that situation. It was because I was in graduate school and I discovered that I needed sexual release regularly to continue studying. And so the man I was having an affair with or having relations with insisted on getting engaged after a while and even though I was engaged to somebody back home I had to do it Uh, anyway that was the most suffering I ever caused that was really terrible and as you can imagine I mean it caused everyone tremendous suffering even this man's family that I went to meet as his fiance I can't even believe it but um, I realized that I had to do something. I, so I started doing, you know, trying different strategies besides having to get married. Well, eventually I just had to leave town. But <laughs> as, as a young woman, I thought, well, I won't make marriage. I mean, I realized actually I wasn't so interested in marriage. But I thought that eventually I would be, but I never was. And so what happened is I thought, well, I'll have sex, but I I will, you know, have a committed relationship when I have sex. Well, what happened with that strategy is that every time I was attracted to someone and slept with them, I would fall in love with them because I had the two linked. And this was terrible because sometimes the person wouldn't fall in love with me and it was unrequited love. I was just bereft, even though I had been roused to love. And other times, we would fall in love with each other, so that worked out, but we were entirely incompatible. I mean, in fact, it turns out that people I'm most attracted to I'm just not compatible with over the long term. I mean, I'm attracted to wild men, crazy men, you know, outlaws. And you can't, you know, raise children in Sherwood Forest with the sheriff. <laughs> anyway. Um, that- didn't work out, and after some years of tremendous suffering under that strategy, I just thought that's it. I've had it. I'm just going to have sex whenever I desire it, and I'm just going to not have relationships. I can't handle love, so I'll just try sex. Well, by this time, it was the mid-60s, so historically, I was at the right time. (laughs) I mean, I could. It was very easy for me to just go over to the Cambridge Common on the Sunday rock concerts and just say, hey, you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, unlike today, it was also a very safe time. I mean, I wasn't in too much danger of inviting serial killers back to my apartment because we were all kind of innocent. And so that turned out to be the worst strategy of all. I mean, I just am not the type. I mean, it just, what would happen is I would have sex and then ask the person to leave or the next morning or whatever, and then I would just feel lonely. So I wasn't temperamentally suited for. For casual sex or that level of casual sex, but men loved it. <laughs> and so I would come back from wherever I was, and there would be a guy sitting on my steps, you know. And then there would be somebody else arguing with the privilege to sit on my steps. <laughs> this was horrible. By the time I got to Zen Center, which was in my late twenties, I um, was interested in just two things: sex and enlightenment. And since I didn't know anything at all about enlightenment, sex continued to be my greatest teacher. And when I was a young student at Tassahara, which is Zen Center's monastery in Big Sur, uh, I was asked to be the guest cook in the summer. And Tassahara is very hot in the summer, and to be in the kitchen was very uncomfortable, so I wore as little as possible. I wore shorts and a camisole without underwear. And sometimes during breaks, I would go jump in the swimming pool in my clothes and come back to the kitchen uh, soaking. And I would be comfortable until my clothes dried. Well, after a couple of weeks of this, Baker Roshi, who was my teacher, called me in. And he, he was very angry, and he said, If you don't put some clothes on, I'm going to kick you out of Tassajara. Well, I was very offended. First of all, you don't have to threaten me to make an impression. And secondly, I thought, you know, I threw off this prudery a long time ago. What is, I don't want to be associated with some organization that is, you know, back in the 19th century or something like that. And when I told him this, he said, it's not just prudery, it's you. He said, it's your body, your sex vibes, your um, invasion into other people's space with your sexuality. And I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, when you came to me right after Suzuki Roshi died and asked me to be your teacher as Suzuki Roshi's Dharma heir, he said, you were so sexy and flirtatious, I couldn't believe it. I said, really? (laughs) Really? And uh, I said, I, I didn't know, know that. I, and he said, what's the first thing you think of when you look at somebody? What's your first perception? And I said, well, I think I, I wonder whether they'd be a good sexual partner. And he said, right, everybody knows that you think that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I said, no wonder I've always had such trouble in my life. (laughs) And that was my first insight, and it was a crashing insight, that if my reality was very narrow, or my perceptions were very narrow, my reality would be narrow. And I didn't understand, as a new student, that suffering actually starts with perceptions, how you organize the world. What is your agenda? Your deep agenda and how you project that onto the world. That was my first understanding of that. Well, I went out of that meeting just reeling with the possibilities here. The fact that I might be able to control what happened to me sexually was really tremendous information. And as a matter of fact, so anyway, after that I started practicing looking at people as human beings. You know, looking into a person's face, what are they about, what are male and female. And as a matter of fact, when my boyfriend and I went out of Tassahara for Christmas vacation, we came up to the Bay Area and got together with another couple that we had been friends with. Except with this other couple, the man had always been a little uncomfortable around me and I never understood why. But in this instance, when we got together at Christmas time, he was very relaxed with me. And I realized I had probably put him on edge with my sex vibes. Well, that just, I felt drunk with power, that I could actually determine how a person felt about me sexually and that I could actually have relationships with people that didn't have that charge on them. I know this seems elementary, but it never had occurred to me before that it was possible to live in a neutral space. I guess my home was, you know, very sexually charged. So anyway, that was a huge insight that my reality could be broader than just sexuality. Now, from a Buddhist point of view, Sex is the chief expression of craving. It causes our suffering. Craving causes our suffering. And sex is the epitome of pure craving. Not only does it override everything in its way to sexual satisfaction, but sexual satisfaction creates more craving. At least when you eat, you're full. But if With sex, it's not that way. If you have bad sex, then you keep trying until you have good sex. And if you have good sex, you say, this is great, I've got to do this again and again and again. So sex, unlike other cravings, just creates more and more craving. Now the aim of Buddhist practice is the cessation of craving. And in the Buddhist view, there's nothing inherently wicked sex, as there is in our Judeo-Christian tradition. The failure to be kind in the sexual realm is neither better or worse than the failure to live up to any other precept. It's not a more serious offense, sexual failings. Buddhism does not get involved in whether sex is wicked or indulgent. The problem for Buddhists is the attachments that rise out of sex, not so, sex itself, but the fact that it really creates attachments to the person you have sex with and to sex itself. There's nothing... or In Buddhism, there's no other reason for sexual restraint than the prevention of suffering, of harm to other people, or of bringing unwanted children into the world. So why do I take issue then with Thich words about sex only being appropriate in a committed relationship? Because as I said, I do think that intimate sex, sex as an expression of intimacy, is one of the most wonderful experiences that a human can have. But I also believe in sexual experimentation. Not only because It's the way that you might choose a long-term partner. Um, For many of us, that is the case, that you'll experiment until you find a partner that you can commit yourself to. But I also think sexuality and sexual experimentation is a tremendous cultivator and developer of skillful means. Now, skillful means in Buddhism is how you manifest your belief how you act in the world with skill. I mean, you might have all the idealism in the world, but if you cheat people at (laughs) commerce or you treat people badly, it it has nothing to do with what you believe. So as a Buddhist, we develop skillful means. We consider how our speech and actions affect other people. And I think that you learn in sexual relationships how... As in no other relationships, how absolutely crucial honesty is. Absolutely crucial. The consequences of seducing someone with a false impression of yourself. Or editing when your lover says, oh, who did you meet? Oh, I met so and so and so. Leaving out the attractive person that you were met, that you met. And I also think that sexuality is a tremendous opportunity for cultivating the ability to observe your own desires and to temper desire right in the middle of tremendous desire when it's necessary to prevent suffering. I also think that sexuality is the ideal medium to learn to recognize and satisfy one's own needs while respecting other people's needs just as much. And I do think this comes down to one of the basic arts of living, not how to satisfy your own needs, not only sexually, but your need for love and admiration, for creativity, for a way to support yourself. If you can learn how, to satisfy those needs for yourself while still giving as much credence to somebody else's needs for all that, that's pretty skillful. That's a pretty skillful life you're leading. But we need some way to learn that. And uh, I have a quotation from a book. Uh, Celeste West, who is a, a librarian, who's our librarian at Zen Center, Wrote a book called Lesbian Polyfidelity, which is a Buddhist training manual for multiple relationships. Lesbian Polyfidelity. And she writes We are all desire machines. With lovers, I really have to confront this, then try to work out solutions. A lover's mirror may reflect me back, or just my false images. It takes awareness and practice to know which is which. I like to find out how I make myself suffer where I'm still stuck. I gradually expand my comfort zone as I learn to let go of how I think my lovers should be. If I don't stay completely present, I can be haunted by ghost lovers, trailing behind me like the wake of a ship. By staying in the holy present, I see my ghost marauders are but awake. Surely a spiritual journey is to learn how to express love. So not misusing sex is a rule of training like any other precept. It's an undertaking you take on, the third precept for yourself and for others as well. As a Buddhist, you do your best to consider the circumstances of the situation you're in and not just charge ahead. If you honor the third precept of not using Sexual, misusing sexuality or of taking sexual responsibility if you honor it but worry that you can't live up to it that you can't take care of it then you do your best with great sincerity and effort this is a tough precept about a tough craving If sometimes you'll fail sometimes you'll succeed and you'll learn from it all if you take that as a guideline. The sex drive is very strong. In fact, my childhood hero, Bertrand Russell, who is an English philosopher and and anti-war activist, in his autobiography he had five marriages and many mistresses. He had the same problem I did growing up in Ohio. (laughs) He had five marriages and many mistresses besides, and he writes in his autobiography that not until his sex drive disappeared in his 70s did he start to know happiness. Mm. Mm. So since sex is the epitome of craving, figuring out how to conduct yourself sexually I think is the epitome of Buddhist training. So, some people don't even consider sex as practice. Now, when I was a new student at Tassahara, I felt that way also. So, uh, there was all the zaza and I was doing, and all the chanting, and all the Buddhist practices, and everything, and that was practice. And then sex was business as usual, you know, my yeah. usual delusion stuff. So, my boyfriend and I got involved with this other couple. And they were senior students, and they <coughs> seduced us. We were all four bisexuals, so it was very—I mean, it was very rich relationship. And in fact, it was the most in love I've ever been. But you know, it didn't stay for people equally loving each other because sex isn't that easy. Um, my boyfriend and I were madly in love with the woman, the other woman. And her husband was madly in love with me. So oh God you know, it was terrible. <laughs> so they were much senior to us and had practiced much longer. So the man the man said, This is terrible. We have to include Baker Roshi in this. No, no. no. <laughs> said, we have to tell him about it.
1: <laughs>
2: well, when he said that, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> no, we'll be kicked out of Tasahara. Because my only, you know, thought is that the principal will kick the bad kids out of school. I mean, I didn't see sex as practice, but they did. The other couple definitely did. Anyway, Baker Roshi sat down with us. And much to my amazement, he just started talking about sexual practice. You know, how to take care of each other. In fact, he had some suggestions for us in tempering our desire while we were at Tassajara. He thought what we were doing was a city practice, actually. And that because we were part of a community, a monastic community, that we shouldn't be having a foursome there. And so he actually gave us tips on how to temper this, which I found very useful. But what was really amazing to me was that sex, just like everything else, was part of practice. Uh, That was enormously expansive to me because it made me see that everything I did was part of practice, everything. That there was no realm that wasn't practice. And so practice, instead of being a little purse I carried around, disappeared. And my life was just my life. So how do we practice in the midst of very strong desire? And I think that we do have guidelines in Buddhism. There's the middle way. And Buddhism doesn't advocate either extreme Puritanism nor extreme permissiveness. Oh, by the way, You already have, but I give you permission to relax and be comfortable, because I might go on and on. Let me see. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. Well, I think I have to eliminate a lot of this. Well, I'll tell you the guidelines, just no more stories. No premature withdrawal. Now that's my option. (laughs) So how do we practice in the midst of tremendous desire? Now, as I said, Buddhism does not advocate either Puritanism nor excessive permissiveness, but how do we know what that is? how, How do we figure that out? It's not sufficiently helpful to just say the middle way between this and that because each is merely an inadequate reaction to the other. So what we have to do is map out a sane and compassionate course. Each one of us has to do this for ourselves, taking into account our desires and other people that we come into contact with, because each situation calls for the appropriate response. You can't just whip out a policy. Now, actually, you can, to some degree, whip out a policy. Like if you're a celibate monk, for instance, that's a policy. No problem there. But, or you might have, as I do, uh, I'm not going to sleep with my students ever. That's just the end of that. So that's a policy. But that leaves a lot of other possibilities. And you have to determine in each situation what that is. What is the appropriate response in each situation. So you might have a combination of policy or never sleep with you know, a person who's married or whatever. So here's some guidelines. I think that the main guideline is mindfulness. Is mindfulness. Zazen and mindfulness. And I think sex is not the only area in which zazen and mindfulness cultivate Cultivate a mind that includes conscious awareness and compassion. This is a practice that cultivates this. So your job is to do this and be cultivated so that you can always bring your best into a situation, into this particular situation, not planning ahead necessarily, but you can understand that whatever comes up, you will meet it with this mind you've cultivated in Zazen. So, um, I also have a quote. This is from an article by Myo Lehi, whom I'm sure some of you know. He wrote an article called Pure at Heart, Dharma Practice and the Gay Self, which is printed in the book Queer Dharma. And he lists the four foundations of mindfulness. Body, so you're attending to sensations there. Feelings, whether it's your Chasing pleasure or averting from pain. States of mind, your emotions, anger, jealousy, desire. And mind contents, the concepts you make out of all this stuff. And by mindfulness, he says, one comes to discover how mental and physical phenomena arise and cease by paying attention to your body, feelings, states of mind and the concepts you have. Slowly and patiently, we can disentangle by mindfulness all the complications of desire. So this means to become aware and clear about your motives in any particular situation. If the sex drive is acknowledged and understood, then the challenge is to be remain aware and to strive to act consciously in the moment. And what we should be mindful of, besides the four foundations of mindfulness, is right speech and right action. And right speech, it isn't right in the sense that it's not wrong. It's not like, you know, Christianity where it's right and there's no other possibility. Right speech means in the sense of whole and healthy, a conducive, having the consequences of compassion and a reduction of suffering. That's what right speech means. So again, consciousness, conscious awareness of your motives and desires and compassion so that you don't present a false self to entice other people. You don't lie. You reassure your lover when your lover needs reassuring. You're kind to your lover and you're honest. Because whatever you say creates tremendous consequences. The editing, for instance, that I mentioned earlier, saying being true to the letter of honesty, but not the feeling of honesty. That's not right speech. And then right action, how you behave in the world. And I would like to quote Dogen's Bendua as translated, by Okamura and our own Taigen Leighton. It's called The Wholehearted Way in English. Bodhisattva vows are our direction in each moment. However innumerable all beings are, I vow to save them all. However inexhaustible my delusions are, I vow to extinguish them all. However immeasurable the Dharma teachings are, I vow to master them all. However endless the Buddha's way is, I vow to follow it. So these four Bodhisattva's vows are are the direction of our action. Since our delusion is inexhaustible, at no time can we eliminate all our delusions. Still, we try to do it moment by moment. And this trying itself is the manifestation of Buddha's way. You understand that you're always deluded and therefore you're careful. You make allowances for your delusion. Our practice is not to eliminate our delusion, but to become aware of the fact that we are deluded. So then when you acknowledge and respect your delusions, you aren't pulled around by them in the same way as if you're pretending that you're a compassionate person at all times. We cannot see the universe from the point of view of other people. We can only see things from my point of view We are limited as individuals. So each moment we see only part of the world, not the whole world, and that is the source of delusion. So after right speech and right action, I think that when we do forge our own way sexually, is when we have multiple relationships, or when we pursue casual sex, or we have a basic committed relationship, but we invite other people into that relationship from time to time. I think that when we do that, we have to make rules about it. For instance, in a threesome, I think you have to decide whose orgasm is first. You know, just again, this is very conscious and very aware and taking care of people. I think when you invite people into a basic committed relationship, you need rules about what are, what's the criteria, who's invited in, and on what basis. And I think you have to be very conscious and aware of when you forge your own path sexually, meaning outside of the usual uh, standards of this culture. So... The key here is to be conscious and acknowledge the attachments created by sexual expression. It's good for you to know what kind of person you are. Like I discovered, for me, casual sex is incredibly painful. You should know what kind of person you are. Sexual pleasure is like money. It's not that it itself is the root of all evil, but love of it is. To Be attached to it. I'll stop soon. Uh, when my son was 14, he continued my sexual karma. Um, but this particular incident, uh, when he was 14, he, there was there was a girl that in his school that particularly called him all the time, bothered him all the time, tried to get him to date her and stuff like that. But he didn't care for. Her. But then one time he came and told me, asked permission actually. Um, because her mother and she had called him and asked him, would he like to go up to the Sierras, to a cabin they had up there? And I said, well, absolutely not. You cannot go. And he said, why not? I'm just going to hang out in the woods. I said, you're going to have sex with her, aren't you? And he got furious. He said, it's none of your business, and I'll go if I want. And I said, "Okay." none of my business, but I just want to tell you, if you think this girl nags you now. <laughs> I said, not only will she nag you twice as much, but she'll have the right to do it. And he said, you get out of my life. I hate you. I, On and on. Terrible. But I did what I could do. I mean, there was nothing more I could do. And so a couple of days later, he came and he said, I just thought, You'd like to know I decided not to go. So all kinds of suffering are available in this realm. Jealousy, lying or being lied to, guilt, resentment, the vulnerability of the exploited, the alienation of the exploiter, helplessness in the face of infatuation, And when you do commit yourself to someone, thinking that that desire is unchanging, that it has to always be in this little container, this little box, that you can't branch out. I don't mean to other people necessarily, but you can't try different things. So you can't really control desire. All you can do is dance with it. And sex is so volatile and so unpredictable that no matter how hard you practice with it, you can't cover all the bases. And my last story will be about this disaster that I thought that I had all the bases covered. I lived at Green Gulch. I was an older student. I was Baker Roshi's Anja, which means his housekeeper. So he and I had a regular relationship. I saw him all the time. And I was at work meeting one day, and there was this absolutely gorgeous man there. He was new. He'd just come from the city center to Green Gulch. And the sun glinted off his hair and <laughs> his arms. And I just thought, oh my God. But then I thought, no, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm not going to, this is going to, I'm just going to do it right. So I went to Baker Roshi. And I said, blah, blah. And I said, do it. Should I act on this or or what? And he said, well, here's what you should do. You're afraid that you'll hurt him, right? Oh, he was 15 years younger than I and a new student. So, you know, the recipe for disaster, right? He said, here's what you do. You call up the city center and find out about his last three relationships and how they went. So I said, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> so I called up the office in the city, and the person who answered the phone knew everything. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: <not really. laughs> so she said she gave me the last three relationships. They were all with older women. This is good. <laughs> and they and she wasn't sure who'd broken up with whom but he never seemed disturbed right i mean he never seemed like he was depressed she said the odds were good that he just you know ended the relationships i said great so i told baker roshi and he said oh this does look very good he said you'll pro he said there's one more danger that you have to overcome and he told me lots of stories of past sexual relationships between younger and older students and he said, you'll probably be a teacher for him whether you want to be or not. Because he'll put that onto you. But even if it ends badly, he said he will understand what it's like to have a relationship with an older student. And he says sometimes people with heart, with broken hearts from this have left Zen Center and then come back because they never could find a relationship that was as present. That sounded good, so I began a relationship with this young man. And it just didn't turn out at all. I mean, it was so complicated in its disastrousness. For one, I never suspected what happened to me, which is as we continued this relationship over the weeks, I guess it was a couple months, something happened to me and I, I got roused to love. I mean, because I was having sex, I got roused to love. I wanted to be in love, but he was so totally inappropriate to love. I mean, he was he was a very sweet boy, but he was just absolutely—I mean, he'd say that when I wanted to listen to the Rolling Stones, he'd say, "But I thought you were so refined." <laughs> oh. and, then, <laughs> and then he even asked me once. He said, "What was all that fuss about in the '60s?" You know, <coughs> what, what was—and he had been a hippie living out of his VW van. You I mean, it was very hard not to say, look, you live in that VW band because of me. Just shut up. (laughs) Anyway, this was very trying to me. So after a while, I had to stop the relationship. I mean, what happened is I started, just like that time in Cambridge that I would just have casual sex, even though this was the same person, it felt like that. I was roused to love, but there was no one to meet me and so i just always ended up feeling depressed and lonely so i finally had to end it and i ended it i thought very gently in fact i had no inkling that he was attached to me because he he didn't know how to please a woman emotionally he never said to me i really care for you or gave me any gifts or anything i mean i never thought that he cared for me he gave no indications and when I uh, ended it, he went to bed for a week and tried to commit suicide. They had to put somebody there at Green Gulch. Everybody hated me, said I was, what a terrible person I was, blah, blah, blah. What a disaster. And so when I went to Baker Roshi to talk about it, he said, I guess this is just a very strong thing, this sex thing. And you know what happened to him just a few. Years later. <laughs> so my point is that no matter how hard you try to practice, and I exhort you to practice very hard with sexuality. You can't pretend that you're covering the bases It is too strong. It's too unpredictable. So you must be very kind and conscious. Kind and conscious. So I'll leave you with a golden rule: never let passion override compassion. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry to have kept you. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll take two questions, so I don't keep you here. Yes.
3: For someone who studied with Skinner, you don't talk about conditioned sexuality. Yes. And your last line on the unpredictability of sex is a great segue. Yes. (laughs) I think the unpredictability of sex is um, in some sort of proportion to the patterns, those uh, Celeste's ghosts, the two big ghosts of love, mommy and daddy, for example, how, and the unpredictability of sex, um, because we don't know sometimes who we're we're loving, because we don't know the the construct of Darlene or Clint or whomever, because we don't know ourselves
2: sometimes. That's the big one.
3: finish my question. <laughs> no, I think you're
2: doing fine. <laughs>
3: <laughs> until I can, until I'll, then I'll have to go to me. Until I can identify these patterns, which seem to me these these conditioned patterns that ruin our lives to be the, 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 the mother of suffering in some way, I feel as if I can't approach another human being sexually anymore.
2: You mean until you...
3: Until I figure out who I'm approaching yes. and why.
2: Well, I admire your restraint. Um, I think that it's... Thank you. not <laughs> easy. <laughs> I think that that's one way to go. Um, yeah,
3: when do I know who I'm looking
2: at? I think that um, it's, it's just always in the formative stage. You know yourself better. You'll know yourself better in five <coughs> years than you know yourself now. It's continuing to commit yourself to practice. Continuing to commit yourself to practice. And I think that commitment is very important because you need to penetrate things that are hard to look at about yourself. So if you care more about penetrating them than you do about your vanity or your thoughts about yourself, you will penetrate them so you have to keep committing yourself to practice to conscious awareness so and zazen is important because it develops stability the stability to look oh and then you flinch away because you can't stand what you see then you look the stability develops the ability to keep looking with less flinching to find out who you are <laughs> Never. But isn't that part of the thrill? <laughs> Another question?
1: I, I, you said, you, said you, you read Queer Dharma and there was a, a some that, of
2: some of the chapters
1: about applying casual sex to uh, applying Buddhism to casual sex. I wondered if, if you Oh, know. your
2: article. Right. right. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to Downplay that. Part. <laughs> but, but I'm
1: very curious because it seems to be in a same area that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Just, where, where for me, it, it seems like it, it maybe is very simplistic just to say there's like two sex of I mean, it seems to be like simplistic, too cut and dry. But it does seem like like there is a sense that some sexual exploration is is, is well, you know like you described this this young man you saw. Um, you know, somebody putting in his hair. I mean, there was probably, I would think, some kind of basic archetype triggered mm-hmm. by, that's right. Uh, you, you know, Absolutely. You knew nothing about, about him as a person, but right. but he, he just embodied this archetype, and, and you wanted to, to to respond to that. Yes. Uh, and I think that, that 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 form of sexual response is very different from from sexual out with, with an intimate partner that you know, and, and it, that it's pretty hard to to, to Push an archetype on that person because you know so much of the mix and crannies of his personality, and, and he can't fit into that archetype because of that.
2: Right. So, how would you, Clint, define intimacy with, with a, a one time um, lover, a one night stand? What would intimacy be in the contact between those two people, casual
0: sex?
1: I, I think it would be a, a sense of trying to share the joy. And the excitement of the experience with the person and not just trying to get it from the person.
2: But yes, I think that's a very partnership. good definition. right? Yes. So that you actually do have a connection, yes. a contact. Um, in his article, Mio also said that he thought the only sin in Buddhism was the cultivation of alienation. Yes. Because in no. Buddhism, we respect the interconnection between all of us. So um, I think that it's quite possible to connect even with a casual lover in the way that you said. You both have that experience.
3: One more question. Yes. How do you reconcile uh, consciousness and mindfulness? With being out of control and total vulnerability, which I think is one of the great powers and gifts of sexuality, is being in that moment of total surrender, of total risk, emotionally, physically, spiritually, which is one of the great gifts of sexuality. How do you reconcile that with the call to be mindful of
2: conscious? Well, I think you can be mindful of being out of control. In fact, I think it enriches the experience tremendously. How? Well, it takes some cultivation. <laughs> I think that... Uh, you're already sitting zazen you're already studying mindfulness and I wouldn't do it in order to have a sexual experience I would just bring the self that does zazen and is mindful into sexual experiences it's not so different does that answer your question it's helpful <laughs> Don
0: so, you're welcome so how was it talk about Pardon?
2: Now that you've done it, I wasn't today. Well, to beca- you guys that? are being nice to me and <laughs> laughing at my story, so it's fine now. <laughs> Good for us,
3: I wasn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're supposed to go into now.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live. Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.